across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? Delicious. <laughs> Good afternoon, Happy New Year and welcome to the first flavour of 2021 with Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and me, Matt Bentman. I'm glad to say that we've all survived Christmas, Corona and the cold and we're back to bring you our look at 2020, a year in which Flavour broadcast 119 new features, fewer than the 125 from 2019, but not too bad under the circumstances. And 2020 was an incredible challenge for the independent food and drink businesses we cover on Flavour. But with the agility of small businesses, lots of ways to survive were found, not least the delivery and collections that became the norm. So today we'll cover some of the responses to COVID and also we'll look back at some of the restaurants, cafes and other producers we covered. We'll look back too at some of the food writing we enjoyed and the work of some local foodie people too. But before we look back, a quick word about the closure of Cambridge Market to try to reduce the spread of coronavirus. We understand the importance of reducing the number of infections, but we can't help but wonder if the approach being taken will be counterproductive. Public Health England reported in October that the place most frequently visited by people in the days leading up to a positive coronavirus test were supermarkets. It may be that this simply shows that an awful lot of people visit supermarkets, but it could equally show that they are places where you risk contracting the disease. The City Council hasn't shared with us the data they've used in analysing the effect of closing the market. Yeah, and the worry is that by closing the market, more people will be driven to using supermarkets. We also wonder why the greater use of barriers, as at the Saffron Walden Market, isn't being employed as an alternative to closure, along with the use of marshals, a well-signposted one-way system and large prominent distance markers on the ground. We will no doubt be returning to this in our next programme, but now let's start our look back at 2020. The year started so well with Flavour covering Mark Poynton's new Friday and Saturday nights at Cambridge Cookery and Bistro, Parker's Tavern's Rubbish Cooks initiative, the Thrive team working on their premises in Norfolk Street prior to opening, and plenty of other developments. But by March, coronavirus had hit. Restaurants were closed and home deliveries were underway. Very quick off the mark was Jay Scrimshaw of Gorilla Kitchen with his bow kits. Emily and Steak and Honor followed by producing home kits, and Vandalal introduced its pick-up-and-collect meals. Here's Mark Poynton, and then Scott Holden of Scott's All Day, talking about their meals delivered to your home. And they're still available, by the way. Almost like a, a gastro or gourmet, so to speak, microwave meal. A choice of three starters, three main courses, and one dessert or maybe two desserts, depending on the week and supplies. We will drop it at your house, and we'll give you all the instructions to heat it up and how to eat it. So basically, you get MJP dining at home. Great stuff. And what's people's reaction been? So far, so good. Everyone's loved it. Yourself and 
yourself included, Alan. Indeed. <laughs> uh, no, everyone's been really positive, and everybody ordered in the first week, pretty much 90% ordered in the second week as well, so it seems to be going from strength to strength. Uh, I don't think it's because because people don't want to cook. I think people want something different. Yeah. Everybody's, everybody's in their mindset now that they want to go out and eat at least once a week or twice a week, depending you know, on funds and stuff, which they can't do. So I think it's nice that they can get a different sort of delivery service over than your normal deliveries or or whatnot. And uh, how do you feel about it? Because it's a big change for you. Yeah, it's, well, it's certainly not a normal style of food. Well, it's, it's still delicious food, but it's not a normal style of food that we would offer. Because obviously you'd come and have everything ready. But, uh, no, I, 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 I'm happy that we can help people in these times of need. I'm happy that people are supporting us as well because it's difficult times for everybody, including my business. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just happy that people want it and people are happy and people are continue to support it and on, and on the flip side as well my wife is on the front line with the NHS uh, so anything we have left, left over on a Saturday night myself and Bradley my manager uh, we drop everything off at the hospital whichever ward needs it so last week we had 25 meals spare so we dropped them off at the hospital and we made the nurses and doctors very happy so we're continuing to do that as well and now Scott Holden of Scott's All Day which you can find by the bridge on Mill Road it's becoming a fundamental aspect managed to add some more dishes to make it a little bit more family friendly. We've got a really fantastic chef who worked in Philadelphia in, a, in an Italian restaurant for a number of years and so he's brought some of that to the, the menu so we've got some pasta dishes and some gnocchi dishes which you know are very good at transporting. I mean pizza is the original delivery so luckily that's very easy to do. Um, we've continued to do brunch by delivery we've taken a couple of the things off that we thought would, wouldn't travel so well but the majority we've managed to adapt and we're just kind of running on as much as we can so that everyone still has the same experience at home if they were eating with us yeah well i was wondering about brunch you mean do things like eggs travel okay relief the closures were ended and replaced once the COVID-19 numbers fell by the government's eat out to help out scheme. Did local restaurateurs find it useful in increasing the number of diners? Here's Alex Creppy of Amelie, Tristan Welsh of Parker's Tavern and Max Freeman of Cam's Cuisine. Yeah it is, it's um, definitely giving people the incentive to go out and and spend the money. I mean it, it was ridiculous how much And here's Tristan Welch with a view from Parker's Tavern. The, the Eat Out to Help Out scheme is doing really well for us. We're fully booked lunch today and dinner tonight. That's uh, so it's Wednesday today. And then next week, I think we've only got one or two spaces left for next week. So it's going very well. Touch wood, touch wood. But as I say to people, you know, um, a, a restaurant's not just for Monday to Wednesday. It's for the whole week. So please come at the rest of the time. Exactly. We really appreciate exactly. it. Really appreciate exactly. it. And that raises the question, 
Is it just shifting trade from the end of the week to the beginning? Max Freeman making a very positive point, though recognising he's only got one weekend to go on. We've only had one full week of it. There was a slight drop-off Thursdays and Fridays, but the weekends pretty much held their own. What it did do is encourage people to come out on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, which is great. So it didn't. It had a slight shift, but not massive from the rest of the week. So the overall game... The scheme ended though some, like Scott's All Day, continued to offer big reductions in its meals on certain days of the week. And now, of course, the restaurants are closed again. Some of the biggest beneficiaries of restaurants closing and relying on delivered food have been the big national or multinational companies like Uber Eats and Deliveroo. However, they benefit the restaurants little. Some charge a whopping 35% of the total bill for delivery, leaving little, if any, profit. Here's Scott Holden again. So, if you can, best to use a local organisation like Foodstuff for your deliveries to help our local restaurants survive. Away from home deliveries, another example of new thinking was provided by the parent Olive in Hildesham. Here's Gail Lecoli. We closed about three months ago due to the coronavirus and then so we had to do something different to keep us afloat. But we had a long-term plan to open a cafe and a farm shop, so I think it was a good opportunity to actually finish it. We have a fairly uh, big area at the back, beer garden, so so we uh, we arranged the beer garden to be more affixed. We we do cafes and sandwiches, paninis, and things like that. And uh, so it's very well received uh, because we are a small, quiet village. And uh, so so we put it pretty much put it on the spot. We've been so close to Cambridge. We're about maybe, let's say, 8 to 10 minutes uh, from Cambridge, city centre. So, I mean, it's, it's a really nice drive, too, from the city centre to here. And, I mean, you feel like you to go outside in the, in the country, in the small village is really lovely. And, uh, and I think the, the, the locals here are really, really pleased. And if you wondered what the colleges were doing while the students were sent home, the answer is quite a lot. Here's Bill Brogan of St John's. To be honest, it, it, it's gone very well. I mean, we have actually stayed open as a, as a catering department. We've been doing takeaway uh, lunches all, all the way through, and that's for any students that have been at the college, uh, any Western Fellows and staff, because still staff have been here working. And that's gone all the way through. And, I mean, we are doing about 100 meals a day at lunchtime. And then from the 29th of uh, June, we started doing evening dinner service as well. So it has been appreciated by the students and by every, everyone. And I mean, one of the things is, A, it's not just about feeding them, but it's also about getting them out to meet people and ones, because a lot of them are just in their rooms studying and things like that, so they can get out and talk to the staff and everything. And so, yes, I mean, that, that has all gone very well. We've been using our uh, vegware disposable items because it's all been takeaway, so... Those items we 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 back in. They are washing them. They're all sent off uh, to be to 
turned into soil enricher as well, so a bit of a positive impact on the planet instead of a negative one, because it's quite difficult at the moment with everybody wearing PPE and everything else. That, that's very impressive, actually. I think um, the fact that all this has been going on very quietly behind the scenes is probably not being appreciated by non-sort of university people in Cambridge. Yeah, yes, that's right. I mean, probably a lot of people don't know that we've been still been operating and everything else. And uh, it was certainly at the beginning in March and April, it was quite strange coming in and not seeing anybody a, drive into work or come into work and walking around the town it was desolate but everybody's carried on and actually during this time we've been getting everything ready for the reopening up of the college uh, re-analyzing all our systems procedures manuals and, and everything else through throughout the summer so we've had we've had a, a small team on but they've actually all been clicking and working very well together and the college has been very supportive and during this time we've decided uh, well our way through is to go and drop off some cake, chocolate brownies and things like that to two care homes. So we've been dropping them off and they've been really appreciated to two care homes within within Cambridge. And the chefs have actually taken those and delivered them and made them fresh on the day and then taken them down there early early afternoon. I've, I've rang the care home up each day and said that look, dropped off at two o'clock. And so that's gone down very well um, and very well appreciated. And hope, hopefully when when things are all better, we might be able to get two or three other staff in from these two camps and have a cup of tea with them or something like that. With unemployment becoming a big issue, many people and families have struggled to afford food. Councillor Alex Collis has always worked to provide meals in Cambridge for those that need them, working together with Cambridge Sustainable Food and local churches, and they will provide the venue and the meal. But due to this lockdown, they've had to adjust their plans. Because these are people that we already knew, we had their contact details, so we could reach out to them and say, look, you know, you can't come for a lunch, but would you like us to deliver something to you? And so that's what we've, we've done. We're also um, supplementing that with food bags as well, so donations from Fair Share that the council's funding. Yes, um, yeah. We are getting in 800 kilos of food every Tuesday, so that's a mix of ambient stuff and a mix of uh, fresh fruit and veg to be cooked into lunches. And a lot of it is packed into bags of groceries for people. So okay. I'm, I'm actually sitting here at the moment staring at a lot, about 100 food bags that are ready to go out this afternoon to various families. We don't know how long this situation is going to last. There is the potential that we're going to need to scale up provision. Mm. This part of the project covers CB4 by far the biggest area of need. So that's East Chesterton, Arbury and um, King's Hedges, of course, where I'm a, a councillor. No small amount of uh, organisation is needed amongst <laughs> all this, is there? You are no. the focal point of all this, yes? Well, it's me and CSF, really. So uh, we've divided up the responsibilities and they are looking after sourcing food donations making sure we've got the funding, making sure we've got the food supply, negotiating with fair share and so on. And then I'm sort of running the logistics of production on the day and distribution and, and the volunteers. So we're sort of sharing out the lows. We're trying to provide them with as much as possible. Mm. So they kind of stretch it out over a couple of days. Okay. It's not just one day's worth of food. It, it, it is sort of two or three almost. You know, it, this is great. It has real value for the community. It's really benefiting people. But it's of equal benefit to the volunteers. Yes, of course. So, you know, yeah. we've had 
loads. I've had quite a few people say to me, I am just so glad to be out of the house and to be able to do something. You know, and it's really good for volunteers' mental health as well. Very true. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, we kind of forget that almost in a way. But, mm. you know, feeling like you've got a bit of a structure to your day and you're giving something back and you're not just sort of. You know, a lot of these chefs, for example, have been furloughed. And if anyone does feel that they want to volunteer, they can email me on my council email address. Oh, yes. Email me on alex.collis at cambridge.gov.uk. I'm, I'm, I'm on the council website. And if there are any businesses wanting to donate food, either contact me or Cambridge Sustainable Food directly. They have a specific page for food donations on their website. Lovely. Thank you very much, Alex. Thanks, Matt. The final word for today about the pandemic is from Sue, who on the 11th of April gave us a brief history of earlier pandemics and how they changed what people ate. The first Black Death killed at least 60% of the population in both rural and urban areas. And actually, locally, we've got the very good example in Great Shelford. Originally was a sprawling medieval village and it stretched more than a kilometre along the high street and had two greens. And then after that, it was reduced to a single 200 metre row of houses beside the church. So we've had this hitting home, which people have obviously are not aware of. And in... The bubonic plague period in London in 1515, actually Cambridge University suspended its classes. Times have revisited us again. What happened? Actually, there were certain remedies as to what people should consume during a period of the plague. It was suggested that because there were what are known as the bodily humours, that the bodily humours could be balanced by certain items eaten during a plague period. Common advice was to avoid fruit, but consume roast meat, spices, vinegar, verjuice, which was unripe grape juice, not wine, uh, sugar, and also have other easily digestible foods like good bread and poultry. It's interesting that vinegar was a very common remedy for plague. So what were some of the other things that were being suggested? It was suggested that because emotions affected health, physicians suggested melancholy should be avoided and people should keep good company, drink good wine and eat good meat. And this was a poem against the plague written in France in 1420. Well, we're not allowed to keep good company at the moment, but we perhaps can drink good wine and eat good meat. I'm free. Here's where we bring you details of free food available now in and around Cambridge. The information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app, which is free to download. Some examples of what's been recently available locally on the Olio app are a Mexican-style rice pouch, green pea penne, buckwheat flour, icing sugar, parsnips, oranges and plenty of items from pret And another free app called Too Good To Go has unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. Rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home instead of being binned at the end of the day's trading. Amongst the trials of coping with the virus, there has been good news too. New places have opened and old places have celebrated their longevity. Simon Steele celebrated 20 years of selling vegetables on Cambridge's Sunday market. 
Here he is at the end of a day's trading, remembering the very early days and how much the market has changed in the last 20 years. We broadcast this on the 9th of May. Very, very different. There were no hot food stalls. The only hot food was Pam and Tony in the caravan at the far end. The whole market was full of arts and crafts producers, which was really lovely. Uh, And on the farmer's side, there were five of us selling vegetables. And there were meat producers, uh, fishmongers. Sylvia was here in those days. Uh, Very, very different market. Right, but five vegetable sellers. But we were all small growers. The first few weeks, I actually shared one of the fishmonger schools. What, what about customers? I mean, what's happened to the number of customers, would you say? Over the 20 years, it has expanded. A lot of, I've still got some of the original customers as well. I mean, there are still half a dozen, perhaps even more than that, of, of customers that we served all those years ago the produce you sell has that changed have people's tastes changed people yes they have things like when we first started things like coal rabbi we used to have to give it away because no one would touch it until they got to try it and use it and then and then they came back and had it more and spinach and chard and that sort of thing we sell a lot more now than we did well i'm surprised that you started with coal rabbi then because it's not an obvious it was one that we used to grow a lot of. Uh, we used to supply various box schemes. And um, um, what got you into it? I mean, I'm I'm a nth generation farmer. Uh, all the family are based in Heathrow, down at, in London. Uh, we go back uh, London, uh, Ealing, Hammersmith. Uh, even apparently they, they claim was well, claimed that we actually farmed in Knightsbridge at one point. Gosh. Uh, used to support our own store in Covent Garden Market. Um, and, and that was the family business. And then we gradually moved out. My grandfather moved on to Heathrow prior to it being an airport. Heath, when Heathrow was just a little village. It was indeed, yes. But yes, before it was a, an airport of any scale. Right. Uh, and his old farmhouse is still on the edge of the runway. <laughs> you can still see the, the, the edge of the, some of the foundations of it. And then what, you you bought some land or rented some land? I rented. We're counter-council tenants up here. Both Shell and I really didn't feel comfortable living at the edge of Heathrow. You know, it was increasingly busy. Uh, we've got a young family at that point, And we were really wanted to go off on our own if we could. And Cambridge County Council were advertising holdings and we applied and we were very fortunate in getting it. Yeah. That was in 19... Yeah, 91, 92. And during the period that the market is closed, Simon is running a box delivery scheme. This week's sold out in hours, though. But you can get on his email list for future deliveries. SimonOrganicCam at gmail.com. The cam is C-A-M-B. SimonOrganicCam at gmail.com. Other schemes are, of course, available. Kofco, for example, and CoFarm, a new venture who I spoke with for the programme of the 26th of September. In a field just off Barnwell Road, there's a whole lot of digging going on. And planting, and harvesting. It looks great in the sunshine. What was once a bare field is now yielding large amounts of veg for local food banks. This is CoFarm, and it smells great. We're just getting wafts of this lovely breeze and the, something coming off the flowers, I guess. It's just sweet air and it's just it's stunning. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah, so we are standing in a fenced two-acre plot 
Surrounding us are rows of vegetables of all different kinds and we've got everything from lettuce to fennel. We even are growing aubergine here which astounds me and it gives me hope <laughs> that we can actually grow things like that here. They grow everything here. And it's quite unusual you see that mix of poppies and cornflowers and daisies and everything. I don't even know what they all are, yeah. but it just looked incredible. And these bees going like, I'm a happy bee business. <laughs> it's perfect. I really want to eat the whole mm. field. It looks so nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you're quite inspired, aren't you? Yeah. There are many volunteers. Hello. Hello. Uh, Millie, this place is beautiful. Just as you're spraying the celeriac here, I can see the rainbows forming in the water. Yeah, it's very relaxing to come out here. This is the third time I've come here now. Okay. I've come here like five or six Sundays. Mm. It's, it's great, it's amazing, it's, it's lovely. Isn't it nice to have fresh vegetables? Oh yeah, like there's honestly so much. So I'm watering the celeriac at the moment. There's <laughs> tomatoes on my left, winter spinach that I've just watered, then there's beans. There's just about everything here, to be honest. There's even a black tomato bush. I haven't tasted yet. Well, I've never seen those yellow beans before. <laughs> yeah, because we make an effort to go to pick your owns and things at the right time of year out of town. But this is something else. So delicious. So really good. The annellino. Annellino. <clears throat> Italian shrimp bean. Okay. Just collecting some tomatoes, beetroot and some beans. I just already feel like I've learned so much. <laughs> Such a productive morning for me, yeah. I love the freshwater smell because <laughs> it hits the soil. It's lovely. Sure. What is it we're watering here? It's spinach. Spinach? Yeah, spinach. We planted it on Tuesday. Uh-huh. When it is watered, we will, we will need to cover it with the fleece because of the pigeons. Ah. They are waiting in the bushes <laughs> for it. Bless them. Co-farm started just a few months ago. I know there are people who've been here all the time, but I like gardens and uh, gardening and all the rest of it. <laughs> One of the recurring comments from the volunteers here is just how much they're learning, how well they're learning. I mean, I never even knew that I didn't know. And that is due to the horticulturalists Pete Rapson and Dom Walsh. Those guys, they're always here, they're always helpful. The sounds as well, the air's punctuated by their conversations, the low hum and uh, laughter in the distance. It's just, it's a joy to be here. And of course the sun is shining today, so it's even better. But also one of the big reasons why I'm volunteering is the fact that then the food all, all gets donated to local food banks just hours after it's been picked so people who haven't got the resources actually have access to fresh healthy produce mm. it's so relaxing yeah, it's a lovely day like i wouldn't be doing anything else if i wasn't doing this it's just a really nice way to spend a weekend okay let's take a short break and we will be back with some more of looking back at 2020 cambridge 105 radio Join me, Neil Jones, every Tuesday here on Cambridge 105 Radio for the very best from the world of rock. Every week we'll bring you big name interviews, all the latest from the local scene here in Cambridge and the very best rock songs around. It's two hours of rock every single Tuesday from nine o'clock with me, Neil Jones, right here across the city in South Cambridgeshire on Cambridge 105 Radio. Need dropping off at work? Missed the bus and must make that urgent appointment. Need picking up after a night out with your mates? 
Panther Taxis is your Cambridge-based taxi firm with over 700 drivers, offering great rates and local knowledge, ensuring you make it quickly and safely to your destination. We don't inflate our prices at peak times, and all our drivers accept payments by cash or card. Book your taxi the easy way. Download our free Panther Taxis app through your app store and start booking your taxis on the go. Call Cambridge 715715 or see Panther Taxis, your local quick, reliable and friendly taxi company in the city. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Sarah, one of CKLG's friendly tax advisors. Creating and preserving wealth is an aspiration for many of our clients. In our complex world of changing legislation and family circumstances, we listen and provide you and your family with bespoke tax advice tailored to your needs. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk. CKLG Accountants, your partner in business, your partner in life. From the new to the old now, one of the oldest food establishments in Cambridge is Fitzbillies. In October, it celebrated its first 100 years. Here are co-owners Alison Wright and Tim Hayward on its beginnings. Fitzbillies emerged out of the First World War. It opened immediately after the Spanish flu pandemic in 1919 and 1920. It was started by Ernest and Arthur Mason, who came back from the First World War and used their demob money to set up the shop. We know it opened on the 4th of October 1920 because we have the ad that ran in the Cambridge News um, two days before. So I think just as now they were preparing for the start of term and were probably desperate to have their new beautiful shop open in time for the undergraduates to come back. The shop front, which is unique, it's not just Art Nouveau, it's particularly Belgian Art Nouveau. An art historian will tell you. It's very, very <laughs> weird. And these guys would have been stationed in Belgium. So when they came back, probably their idea of what a glorious cake shop looked like may have come from someplace bombed to hell, somewhere near the Ardennes or something. I don't know. But I love the idea of that, that weird connection. It's almost as if it goes back before the 1920s. And the idea is gelling in their head while they're still out there in the in the trenches. One of the things we cover in the book, which is a really quite intriguing sort of route to this resurgence of British bakery, people forget that at the beginning of the First World War there were riots right the way across the country where people were chucking rocks through the windows of bakeries, particularly because they were largely owned by German and Austrian families. And within six months uh, after the Lusitania was sunk, the, there, were, there were none of them in the UK at all. They'd all been <laughs> sent home, quite literally thrown out of the country. And, and they were, they, they, because it was such a peculiarly Austrian and German business, having a bakery in, 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 in the town, there was an enormous lack of bakeries at the end of the war that was filled by young people coming back. Meanwhile, the vitality of the independence continues. Even in these difficult times, new businesses open up. The Finn boys have already stimulated massive interest and here are Jay Scrimshaw and Richard Holmes talking about it for our programme of the 21st November and their fish butchery, which will open on Mill Road in the spring. So the restaurant side of things is going to have a bit of an Asian feel. So there will be a lot of raw stuff, you know, so maybe it's sashimis or crudos if it's Italian. It's going to be simplistic, it's not going to be complicated. It's going to maybe have two or three items on the plate 
you know, have, we're going to be working with some good farmers around locally around Cambridge, so we'll be championing the vegetables, the seasonal veg, as well as the fish. It's going to be simple. It's be, you might just get a fish and a sauce, and that's it, in yeah. one course. And there might be just a fish and a veg, or a veg and a fish sauce. You know, have some vegetable courses, have some vegetable grab-and-goes. Like I said, the menu just hasn't been decided. I think it's safe it's, to say fish soup will be on every day, and, and then oysters <coughs> will be on every day. And uh, we'll be curing our own fish as well, and making gravlax. Um, we're going to probably run some boxes, Christmas boxes. We're going to have um, some of our deli items as well. We want to make um, fish pâtés and riettes mm. as well. Um, so again, utilising the whole fish. Yeah. If the skin was taken off, you could make almost like you know prawn crackers out of it. You know, there's yeah, everything has got possibilities. You know, you, we need to utilise everything of that fish because so much of it is thrown away. You know, most people, you know, you get your fish, you take your fillets off, and that's all you got, and that's probably, I don't know, 50 to 60% of the fish goes in the bin. Right, we so dry, what, we can dry what's bones for dashi, right. we can make our own dashi, um, so we can dry the bones for that, we can smoke bones for that. Um, we just want to say the head, the, you know, the head's going to be, can be made into fish soup, you take the cheeks out, you can do stuff with the eyeballs, you know, you've got the livers. Yeah. There's just everything, everything we, you know, everything we use from an animal, from a cow or a lamb. It's the same for um, a fish. We just... Another newcomer with a big future is Henry, a chef at Trinity and his oyster lab. So I started the oyster lab in the beginning of September and the concept of it is, is basically taking oysters to the next level. I'm basically looking to just kind of elevate the, what they're paired with and to bring a bit more fun and excitement to it to people so they can enjoy it a bit more, basically. Why oysters? I'm just very passionate about oysters. I love eating oysters. And yeah, I suppose it was just something that I found that there was something to explore. So are we talking fresh oysters, cooked oysters, yeah, or a bit of both? I mean, so it's a bit of both. Um, all the oysters that we get, will, yeah, they come in that very morning. But when we do our tasting events that are coming up over the next few months, it will be a mixture of cooked and raw oysters. So where are these tasting events going to be held? So for the rest of the year, they'll be being held at the Senate Bistro in Cambridge. That's the one opposite Great St Mary's, isn't That's it? That's the one, yeah, just um, with King's College in Clearside. What makes you so passionate about oysters? Why do you like them? I think for me, it's the enjoyment that people get from when they eat oysters. I think it brings a really good kind of buzz. It just, yeah, it's associated with a very happy feeling, you know, associated with a bit of champagne and sparkling wine sometimes as well. So I think there's something to be evolved there, definitely. So are you doing wine pairings with your oysters? The future events I'm having at the Senate Bistro will all be paired with sparkling wines from around the world, which will be done by a very good friend of mine, um, Sam Montgomery, who's also started his own um, private wine tasting business. What type of oysters, though? Because there's more than one type of oyster. There are. So the ones we'll be using at the moment will be um, Mersey Rock oysters, and they will just be the base for all of our events for the rest of the year. And as our menus develop and we see kind of what people want, what they like, what they prefer, that's when we'll start implementing new stuff and essentially different types of oysters as well. And Mercy, of course, is quite local, isn't it? Yeah, that's so. it. And I mean, you know, the supply for it is amazing. The, the oysters that are coming at the moment are fantastic, so we wouldn't want to use anything else right now. One of the continuing big changes in eating this year has been the move to veganism. A new business called Vito Mito has set up to help meet demand and Thrive in Cambridge Norfolk Street has done the same. Justin Bone is good friends with them, and Justin is the man behind Vito Mito, which you can find in Market Passage near Tabouche. Here he is now. What's up, man? Vito Mito is basically 
you know, it's, it's in the title. It's Veto the Mito. What we're trying to say is that you don't have to have meat with every meal. The vegetables that are available to us, the pulses, the dishes that are available to us from across the globe, you know, some fantastic street food. I mean, most of Asia, when you think about it, is vegan. And so we thought that the best thing to do especially in Cambridge, we wanted to, to, you know, set it apart from the other eateries, was just concentrate on this street food concept, make the vegetables centre stage, if that makes sense. So yeah, we've got the burgers on there, we've got, we've got Cambridge's only kebab. As far as I'm aware, I don't think anyone's doing a vegan kebab. We had the staples, but then we thought, no, there's more to it than that. So we introduced the curries, we've got street bowls, things like falafel popcorn, kimchi, steamed greens with peanut sauce, all these great dishes that are available across the globe, and we thought we'd bring them here. He mentioned burgers on the Vito Mito menu just now, along with many other things. And of course, these are plant-based burgers. And to make such burgers, you can use Satan. Now, what is Satan? For anyone who doesn't know, here's Justin. The best way to describe seitan is it's a wheat meat. So when you grind wheat, there's a protein that comes off it, a fine powder called seitan, and this is the wheat meat. And you can use that powder and you can mix it with herbs and spices and flavorings. And then you produce a dough, which is very similar to bread. From that, you can make many different products. We tend to pan AR, so we put, cover it in um, panko breadcrumbs. So you're trying to create the texture of chicken and the texture of kebab meat. Funnily enough, we had a customer today that ordered our chicken burger, which is made of seitan, and they were halfway through it before they realised it wasn't chicken. And I had to explain it to them, but they absolutely loved it. And on Sunday, we had a family of four halfway through their burgers, said how fantastic the burgers were, and I looked at them and I said, it's amazing what you can do with pea protein. And they looked at me completely blankly. And I said, this is a vegan restaurant. And the face was just, what? I said, yeah, that's not meat. And they were, they were literally bowled over, but they were really, really pleased. And again, I was trying to say to them, you know, with these great products that we have on the market, there's no excuse for a family not to have just one day off a week. You know, when's your veto day? I mean, we've started doing these veto boxes that you can get from us. But I was calculating the figures today. It's like if one family takes one day off a week, over the year they save over a quarter of a million of gallons of drinking water. You know, that's a phenomenal amount. We're talking over 6,000 square metres of rainforest saved. Just one day a week. Have a veto day, please. There's the music that signals time for our Twitter news. We have to pre-record our programmes now because of limited access to the Cambridge 105 radio studios as a result of the virus. So we can't bring you the latest tweets, but we can tell you that you can follow Flavour on Twitter at Flavour 105. And don't forget, we are on Instagram as well, also at Flavour 105. Flavour continued to cover new food books last year. There was a very interesting one called Orchards East by Monica Askey and Tom Williamson. It looks at the history of the East of England orchards county by county and includes some very good recipes. I asked Tom for the programme of the 1st of August about the rise of Chivers of Histon. I mean, the story there is, is 
kind of sums a lot of it up really Stephen Shivers Shivers have you pronounce it he starts growing apples on a large scale after the arrival of the railway and the orchard is indeed next to the railway station he's just a grower to start with but one of the places he's sending his fruit to is Bradford and he's sending so much to Bradford that he actually sets up a distribution depot there which is two sons so I think John and William they're put in charge of and they realize in the 18 early 1870s that the main buyer in Bradford is a jam manufacturer so they go back and say to their father um yeah what are we doing we can make more money making the jam ourselves so 1873 again next to the railway station everything is fixed to the rail lines really uh, they they set up a fact small sort of well it's just converted barn really and then they build this huge factory which then gets extended again and they branch out into canning and all kinds of other things it's a huge thing and they're partly um processing the fruit from their own orchards which also increase in scale but they're also drawing in produce from all the other orchards around which increasing their really therefore shift out of apples and in particular even more into plums because it's it's the market and tim haywood has a new book out too alan spoke with publishing director at quadrille sarah lavelle about it it's a book about the sort of social history of bread but also bread as a almost as a sort of design object it's just something that's so perfect and familiar to so many people um it's you know and, and it's just something we all know and that we all kind of turn to for comfort and and what that what that means to us how important bread is in in everybody's lives and there was so much I think once Tim started looking into it there was so much to sort of say about it or... uh, I don't know if you recall the bit where he talks about when he was a child and he used to go to the seaside uh, I'll read a bit there was never a good spot nearby it was always over the next endless dune an interminable hot trek, feet slipping in boiling sand, and, unlike Lawrence of Arabia, without a convenient intermission. Eventually, our spirit would break before we could find a good spot. So we'd settled for three square metres, miraculously free of dog deposits, but not far enough away from the couple trying energetically to consummate under a small towel. We'd slumped to the ground, and only then were we able to contemplate the horror of the sandwiches and if you'd like to hear the rest of that interview you can find it in our 29th of august podcast just look at the cambridge 105 radio website all the people we've covered on our programs throughout 2020 have endured difficult times and getting through them has taken effort belief and fortitude a distinct type of effort belief and fortitude has been shown by will Lowe. Will is the man behind the Cambridge distillery, whose gins are literally world-beating. But he also became a master of wine, one of only 409 in the world. It's an almost impossibly difficult achievement, and I spoke with him about it for the programme of the 24th of October. So your your preparation involved tasting a lot of wine, sir? Yes, I mean, I, I think it's probably fair to say that over the past five years, I will have spat out more wines than you'll drink in, in your life. There is no substitute for rigorous preparation, and the preparation is, is very involved. You know, at a conservative estimate, uh, a student would taste around 5,000 wines per year uh, in preparation. In order to pass tasting, you need to pass 
all three papers that week, and there is one attempt per year. The words that I heard, um, and, and I forget to whom I should attribute them, but words that really ring true, uh, the best wine tasters on the planet often will be MW students. You leave no stone unturned, and the depth required of knowledge and tasting experience is one thing, but the breadth is really quite another. Uh, and there are not many professionals who have to continue both that depth and breadth simultaneously mm-hmm. for their ongoing career. Far more often it's the case that someone will then become a highly, highly regarded expert in Bordeaux, in Burgundy, in the super Tuscan wines, in whatever it may be. It does sound like an expensive process. It is, it is. Um, I mean, there's again, there's no escaping that. I was very fortunate. I started the Master of Wine on a scholarship, uh, and then I passed the first year, and the first year was the bit that was covered by the scholarship. It was very generously provided by uh, by Wines of Spain. Uh, but then I found myself uh, staring at stage two. In another feature on the 24th of October, we asked Lawrence Butler of Vanderlyle and Tristan Welch of Parker's Tavern which have both been high-profile reviews in the national press, what the experience was like. We, we knew she was writing a piece um, on, on picnics, and we had a picnic offering at the time. Uh, but we had no idea that the piece was mainly just going to be <laughs> about us, or that it was going to be a review or, or anything. So that was a huge surprise. Restaurant critics generally book under a, a different name. So the first anybody knew was when he was sitting there. So who, who realised it was him? Oh, funny enough, he doesn't always look exactly like his photos. So, so the team are briefed with restaurant critics, what they look like and all that sort of stuff. But they're a little bit like me, you know. They put pictures up from, like, 20 years ago, <laughs> things like that. So we didn't actually know it was Jay Rayner until further on in the meal. So how, how did you realise that he was ordering so many dishes, maybe? No, they don't. The, um, restaurant, uh, the restaurant critics I've had generally come with one other guest and they, 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 they order a starter, main course, dessert, maybe a little side dish or something like that, and that's it. Uh, and, and, but they will taste their guest's food as well, generally. Unless, actually, Adrian Gill normally comes with something like a table of six. And he's got a family, he had a family of five, didn't he? So he would come with the whole family and, 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 and then he'd order everything, yeah. So when you realised it was Jay Rayner, what was the reaction? How, how quickly did word get round the kitchen? Well, as you can imagine, quite quickly. Quite quick, um, I, I, wow, what did we feel at the time? We're like, crikey, it's Jay Rayner, gee whiz. Um, and by then it was main course, it had already gone out. So we're like, right, what's he having for dessert? <laughs> Let's, let, let, let's focus on that. Uh, the first thing that brought um, um, Jay Rayner to our attention, he asked if the bolognese sauce had pork in it. And um, we said yes. And he said, right, uh, maybe that should be clearer on the menu. Uh, and then, and of course, that feeds back to the kitchen. We're like, oh, right, yeah, of course, yeah, um, um, absolutely. By the way, it, it does, but that's, that's fine. And, and, then, and then the waiting um, team came in and said, oh, remember, the staff came in and said... Um, do you know, there's something about this guy. He's asking questions. And that was it. As a follow-up to that feature, we asked Tim Hayward what it was like doing restaurant reviews for a national newspaper. And you can hear that in our programme of the 21st of November. And on the subject of national recognition, Sue spoke with Matt Hodgson of Grape Britannia in Arbury Road about their prestigious award. We've some news that we're really hugely excited about. We've just won the Decanter Retailer Awards 
2020 for the best specialist in English and Welsh wine. Gosh, that's that's really good news. How did you come about um, this amazing chance? Well, you see, the Decanter Retailer Awards are pretty much the most prestigious awards for wine retailers out there. So we thought we'd chance our, our arm at it. So um, we, we sent off an application for it. So it's done by application and then judged by industry experts, a couple of masters of wine on the panel, for example. So we sent it off, I think, probably more in hopes than expectation. After all, we've only been launched as a business for 15 months now, so we're, we're quite young. We put our application in, and then we're, we're delighted to be shortlisted alongside some other amazing businesses. It's a very strong shortlist for this category. I mean, we were there alongside four other businesses, including Waitrose. And then we found out this week that we'd actually won the category, uh, beating the, the reigning champions Waitrose in second place. That is quite an achievement. Well done. And I gather yeah. you also entered in for another category and did pretty well on that too. Yes, we, we did. So we, we entered for what they call the green champions category. Um, I mean, sustainability is right at the heart of our ethos here at Grape Britannia. So, um, you know, it's not just the fact that all of our 200 plus wines um, are sourced locally um, in this country, which obviously means that there's uh, minimal food miles compared to imported wines. But uh, it goes beyond that. I mean, pretty much everything we, we think about sustainability is, is in our thoughts. So whether it's our you know deliveries locally via our box bike, the fact that all of the deliveries we send out um, nationally are basically reusing the packaging that comes in from our suppliers. We, we didn't splash out on the beautiful branded boxes. We just literally take back up the boxes that came in. So we, we reuse everything. We must also applaud the fortitude of the people who work on the market here in Cambridge. They have endured a lot this year. Some had to stop trading during the first lockdown. Some soldiered on during those silent months. Recently, they've endured cold weather, worries about COVID, and now how to make a living during their enforced closure. In July, the lockdown eased significantly, and it felt like things could breathe for a bit. I think it was my first chance to do any outside interviews, so I went straight to Cambridge Market to see how they had weathered things. The market adapted during lockdown as the food stalls shifted to the outside edges. But that atmosphere in lockdown was really special, you know. It really was. We would just be a few bunch of us. Initially, the market was still buzzing with customers coming to buy things on the outside. But if you walked out of the market square, it was deathly quiet and really eerie and weird. That's right. For social distancing, most of the food stall holders have been moved to the edge. So the locals have pretty much kept a lot of people afloat over the last few months. So there's no doubt about that at all. Oh, the customers have done it. Honestly, we can't thank them enough. They've really gone to town. But as the restrictions were lifted over the last few weeks, how did they feel about it? First week it was very quiet. Second week it was still quiet. It was a challenging, yeah, but we just managed to, you know, to carry on. Third week a few more people ventured out. Not busy, you know, not really busy. And we have to be positive to going better. Things are coming very much back to life now. And then little by little, more and more people have come out and just gone, yeah, happy to see you here, sort of thing. But every week is different, so that when the pub's opened, obviously everything cooled down a little bit. But they're very well behaved, lovely local people. I think it will slowly get back to normal. It makes you feel really lovely when you've been away for so long and you have these horrible feelings like, 
when I come back, is nobody going to like my cake? And we just never, you know, no, we're never going to see any of our local customers. Have they, have they found something else, you know? Or, and then seeing them all come back and see it as their first proper coffee or whatever, it makes you realise why you do it and that this is probably the best job ever. We need people to come, come all over the places, come to Cambridge Market. It's fun. <laughs> and if you don't buy anything, you still enjoy the sunshine. It's a lovely place to be. <laughs> and continuing the theme of people out in all weathers, let's finish with our most frequent contributor of the year, Steve Thompson, the foraging chef and head chef at the Plough and Shepherth. Here he is on a summer's day in June. Yeah, it's been absolutely gorgeous. We've had the real heat and the wet, so that's brought a lot of things out. First thing we're going to talk about is a plant that really likes to dry. So you're looking along the edge of fields and uh, real, real dry areas, basically, and it's chamomile. So chamomile, obviously really easily identifiable by its smell. But what you're looking for in the first place is almost like a daisy-style plant with the flowers, except the petals being white still, instead of going up, go down. So it kind of looks like a backwards daisy. You often see these white daisy-type flowers growing by the verges because they're not mowing them so much anymore. Is that chamomile or is that something else? It could be, or the other thing it could be is the oxide daisies at the moment, but size is a key one there. Oxide daisies are a lot bigger, almost like double the size of a two-pound coin, whereas chamomile, you're looking at somewhere like around five pence to ten pence, somewhere in between their sort of size for flowers. Um, and again, the smell is just key. You've got that lovely apple almost unique smell that chamomile has oh yes um there's you can make lawns out of chamomile can't you when you crush them by st- you, know, you stand on them and crush the scent yeah you can do yeah oh there's a ridiculous amount of plants they use for that i think isn't it and yeah they're beautiful and the smell of them is just absolutely amazing i think it's up to like 100 plants they use per square meter that's quite a lot no i, th- I think to find them in the wild is much more sensible <laughs> yeah <laughs> um uses for them i mean if you want to come see one of the uses that we do find one of my cake stalls if you check out on our page we do a wonderful chamomile milk cake where we literally take the flowers as they are and infuse them in the milk and then use that to make the cake and that works beautifully but obviously classic way of using them is just dry them out for tea Mm, chamomile tea of course yeah Mm, it's got lovely it's a lovely drink to have before bedtime it's said to have really good like uh, relaxation anti-anxiety helps you sleep that kind of properties to it um, there's loads of things really. Imagination can take you. Infused in uh, gins and vodkas is lovely as well. That's really, really good. And you can make cordials out of it. It depends how much you like the flavour of chamomile to how strong and how prominent a flavour you want it to be in dishes. Mm. Okay, that sounds really interesting. No, I've, I took note of your cordial suggestions from the last time we had the recording and been making lots of elderflower cordials. So, oh, it's yes. lovely, isn't it? Isn't it good? And also <laughs> making some elderflower champagne. So that's, that's going on nicely and has not exploded, thank goodness. Excellent. <laughs> and that takes us to the end of our look back at 2020. Don't forget we are here on alternate Saturdays at 12pm, repeated on Sundays at 2, and then again on Mondays at 6pm. There's also the podcast, which will be available early in the next week. Coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today at 1pm is the Cambridgeshire Football Show. But that's all from us. We'll be back on the 16th of January with our normal style of programme with lots of food and drink news, jobs and features. But until then, Happy New Year and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.